Turn your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation uh, chapter 2 is the last book of the Bible. We're in a series from chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. We've called it Seven Letters. That's a number of letters that were dictated by Jesus to the Apostle John to be sent to seven specific first century churches in the Roman province of Asia. These letters were designed to encourage and to strengthen these people in these churches so that they could withstand the persecution that was rolling over them wave after relentless wave under the cruel hand of the Roman emperor Domitian. And we're using these letters to do some self-examination as a church here at the beginning of 2019 because Jesus tells us in these letters that they apply to every church throughout history, even the city church here in 2019. And we read the first letter last week. I want to read the second letter this morning, starting in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Two things, by the way. (laughs) A, or one, politically incorrect, right? And second, Jesus takes the persecution of his people very seriously. Just notice that. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Likely that 10 days is not a literal 10 days, but it's a way of saying that it will be for a finite period of time. He says, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what we're doing this morning. And he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. I want to give you just a little background before we look at these verses in more detail. Smyrna was about 35 miles up the road from the church that we read about last week, Ephesus. It still exists today by the name of Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey. Smyrna had a reputation for being a very beautiful city, but its beauty concealed just how dangerous it was to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ there. Decades before this letter was dictated by Jesus, several Asian cities had entered a competition for the supposed honor of building a temporer, uh, excuse me, building a temple for the then Roman emperor Tiberius. Smyrna won the competition, and they were the only city allowed to build that temple. Emperors, you see, weren't just political and military leaders. The worship of emperors became the state religion throughout the Roman Empire. Subjects of the empire were required to confess, Caesar is Lord. Smyrna had become the center of emperor worship, and it was very proud of that reputation, and it guarded it very closely. And so it was an embarrassment to Smyrna that Christians there wouldn't bow their knee to the emperor and confess him as Lord. And so Christians who would not do so were subject to intense persecution, which as you can see from this letter, the church in Smyrna was subject to that. I said last week that these letters generally follow an outline which starts with a commendation that Jesus has for the church and then a complaint that he has against it and then a correction, something that they could do to change the complaint, and then a comfort of some kind at the end. But if you noticed, Jesus has no complaint 
And therefore, no correction for this church in Smyrna, just commendation for their faithfulness, comfort for them in the end, in their future suffering. So I want to look at this letter through a little different grid than we did last week, through two words, actually. What and why? First, what were these people suffering? And for reasons I'll explain later, I think it's very important to look at the words that Jesus uses to describe their suffering. And then second, why? Why were they willing to suffer persecution? So let's jump into the first uh, word, what. What were these people suffering? And the first word that Jesus uses to describe their suffering gives us a sense of the degree of their suffering. It's the word affliction. He says, I know your affliction. Now, there were a number of words that Jesus could have used that meant affliction or something like affliction, but the one he chooses is the Greek word thlipsin, which means to crush or to squash. This wasn't, what these people were experiencing wasn't just some mild affliction. This persecution was a crushing kind of persecution. We'll look at what it was that was crushing them in a moment, but just understand, please, that the words of Jesus in this letter Uh, They were not theoretical theology on a nice Sunday morning. The people of Smyrna were having to trust their lives with what Jesus was saying. These words were their source of hope, and if not true, they had wasted their lives and were wasting their lives and were above all to be pitied. Affliction. He says, I know your affliction. It's personal. I know it. And then Jesus says, these next two words kind of give us a sense of the nature of their afflictions. He says, I know your poverty. Now, again, there were two words that Jesus could have used to describe their poverty. One of them sort of described normal poverty, but the word that Jesus uses refers to a level of poverty that few people ever know. It's a word that meant to be destitute, utter deprivation, being reduced to a beggar. Now, why were they in such Poverty. Was it because they didn't know how to make money? That wasn't it, of course. The reason was that they were so ostracized for their faith in Christ that they weren't allowed to make a living. And probably beyond that, well, there's something else. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews in which the author is commending the first century Christians to whom he was writing for how they had endured all matter of persecution under the Roman Empire. And, and he says this, he says, He says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. So in addition to being ostracized for their faith, it is likely that what these Christians in Smyrna have experienced is the confiscation of their property. How would you like that? The home that you've built, perhaps the business that you've built, the assets that you have, your retirement plan, whatever. The government has come in and they have seized that because of your faith in Christ. How would you like that? The third word that Jesus uses to describe the nature of their persecution is the word slander. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. As much as the Roman Empire didn't like Jews or Christians, because they didn't worship Caesar, 
they had come to an agreement with the Jews that they could practice their religion without having to bend the knee to the Roman emperor. They hadn't come to that agreement with Christians, and so the Jews in Smyrna stirred up trouble for Christians. They accused them of atheism because they denied the gods of Rome. They accused them of political disloyalty because they refused to obey the laws and say, Caesar is Lord. They accused them of perversity because they called complete strangers brothers and sisters, and they claimed to drink the blood and eat the flesh of their dead leader at their love fests. That's the slander. And this is all, all of this is what these people were so faithfully enduring. And I said a moment ago that I think it's important that we, that we looked at each of those words. And you might have been wondering, well, why, why was that so important? I don't know if you've noticed or not. But there are signs that things are getting less and less comfortable for Christians in America. I think it's fair to say that the culture is becoming more and more hostile even to Christianity. Have you noticed that increasingly people say that Christians in America, they say that we're not just mistaken about our beliefs. Now they say that we're evil, that we're hateful, that we're dangerous. That's a significant reversal of position for the church in America. Because in the past, whether people believed in Christ or not, previous generations saw Christians, well, they saw them as flawed, probably hypocritical at times, but basically a positive influence on the world for good. But today, in many circles, we are seen as the problem. Our beliefs are immoral. We are anti-choice, anti-women, anti-gay, anti-equality, and anti-tolerance, they say. And there is very little attempt to hide the contempt that many people have for Christians in America. Let me, let me give you an example. You probably noticed that Jesus argues in verses 9 and 10 that, that Satan, uh, the devil, was behind the persecution that the church in Smyrna was experiencing. Not long ago, there was an article in uh, the magazine Psychologi- uh, Psychology Today written by a professor at Pitzer University with a Ph.D. in sociology and secular studies. And in this article, he was expressing incredulity at the fact that people still believe in the devil. And the title of the article was, The Devil? Seriously? And here's what he wrote. And I want you to, I'm going to put it up on the screen because I want you to notice the insults that he doesn't even attempt to veil. He says, according to a 2013 YouGov survey, 57% of Americans believe in the devil. And yes, that is 57% of American adults, not kindergartners. But there is no such thing as the devil, just as there is no such thing as fairies, imps, or goblins. Goblins. The two largest religions in the world, Christianity and Islam, teach that there is a devil, and they are wrong. There is no evidence for such a thing, not a shred. The professor goes on to try to explain why people still believe that the devil exists, but then he concludes with this. All of these explanations are certainly plausible, and yet, I must admit, they leave me feeling shortchanged. For when I think about well-educated people believing in Beelzebub, I remain deeply, deeply flummoxed. How can anyone 
with even a basic knowledge of history and psychology, science and anthropology, mythology and logic, believe that there is an immortal evil being running around doing evil things. It is so absurd as to be pathetic. So there you go. If you believe what Jesus says here in this passage, that the force behind the persecution of Christians is satanic, demonic, well, pick your adjective, you are absurd or pathetic. Like a kindergartner in your belief. That's, he doesn't do much to veil his contempt, does he? The slanders and the insults sting no less today than they did in the first century. Whether the hostility toward Christianity in America will ever get to the level that the church in Smyrna experienced or not, well, no one really knows. But I think it's important that we understand the shoulders upon which we sit here this morning and worship. And even to examine ourselves. Actually, I don't want to do it that way. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to do it that way. I, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm... Um, I don't want you to feel this morning like I'm being hard on you or that I'm trying to pick on you or that I want you to walk away feeling guilty this morning because none of those things are what I want to do. So let me say it this way. Here's what happens to me when I read this passage. And and then if this applies to you, then use it. If it doesn't, then ignore it. But when I read this passage, I find myself asking, If these people were willing to endure so much for Christ, why am I so casual about my faith? Why were they so white-hot committed to Christ, willing to suffer the crushing affliction, the grinding poverty, the hateful slander? Why am I so casual about my faith when they were so deeply committed and really What I'm asking here is what was it that they experienced in Christ that my casualness suggests that I don't experience? Because I'll be perfectly honest with you. I want that experience. Now listen, I'm not a masochist. I don't want the persecution. But I want that experience of Christ that makes me white hot in my passion for him. What made them so different? And I think there's a clue to that in this passage. So let's move now. We we understand what they were suffering. Let's move now to the why behind their endurance. Why were they willing to suffer to endure this persecution? Let me give you the answer first, and then I'll, I'll show you the clue. The reason that they were willing to suffer persecution was that they had a hope that was rooted in the next life. They had a hope that was rooted in the next life. Here's the clue. In verse 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, that's, that's heavenly accounting for you. read to you a moment ago the passage in the book of Hebrews that described the confiscation of property that likely the Christians in Smyrna would have endured. But I didn't read the end of the passage. Let me read it to you now. The author of the book of Hebrews, as he was commending first century Christians for enduring persecution, he says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Man, put yourself there for just a moment. 
Let's, let's do that. Let's say it this way. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of a home that you've built, that you planned on retiring in. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your building, where your business is, and all of the assets that are in it, so that now you can make no money at all. You can't make a living. But you spent years and years and years building that. You joyfully accepted that. And he says, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What's he saying? He's saying that they were, they were looking beyond this world for their hope, for the satisfaction of their deepest longing. That's what he means when he says that you knew that you had better and lasting possessions. And in one sense, the loss of property, this injustice, brought the contrast between this world and the next world into sharp relief. Because it lifted their eyes beyond this world to the next one, which Jesus promises is far superior to this one, and where ultimate reality is found. And you see, I'll tell you, one of the, great, one of the greatest threats to Christianity in the West, and the difference between these people and their white-hot love for Christ and my casualness, frankly, is materialism. Because what materialism does is that it roots us here on earth. It convinces us that this world and its riches and its luxuries and its comforts and its conveniences is what we should be living for. That this physical world and this life is the sum total of reality. I somehow, I don't know how this happened, but I got onto a mailing list, an email list, for an online magazine called Jet Setter. It's for luxury travelers. I don't know how I got on this list, but I did. And normally I just unsubscribe from stuff like that, uh, but I didn't this one. And I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's the cold and the gray outside in the middle of a Midwestern winter that makes me do it or not, but sometimes I find myself looking at the pictures of these expensive and elaborate homes on or near the beach in whatever tropical destination that they're promoting at the moment. And let me just, let me just be very honest with you here. I think to myself... At times, I do. I think to myself, oh my, (laughs) that's what life is all about. That's heaven right there. And to pull back the curtains even a little more, there are even moments that I've been standing up here preaching on a Sunday morning, and a picture of one of those homes in one of those places flashes across my mind. (laughs) And as honest as I can be here, it'll feel like a kick in the gut that takes my breath away, and I'll, I'll wonder, what in the world am I doing here? in the middle of a cold, gray, Midwestern winter on a Sunday morning, when I could be sitting on the beach with a tropical drink in my hand and my feet in the sand, enjoying the sun and the good life, I am wasting my life away. And you see, when you speak publicly for as many years as I have, you can be speaking and have that developed of a thought going on in the back of your mind at the same time, and people never know it. In fact, I'm doing it now. I'm kidding you. I'm kidding you. It's so seductive. Materialism, it is so seductive because it persuades us that this life is all there is and this life is what we should be living for and that there's no need to look to heaven because what you want is here, now. But that's a poverty-stricken worldview. It really is. And and let me try to explain it to you this way. Imagine a four-year-old child at Christmas. She doesn't know what it is. She doesn't understand Christmas. She doesn't know what hit her. She can barely contain herself. All she knows is that for some reason she has presents that she gets to open 
uh, with new toys to play with. In her mind, if she could formulate the thought, she would say that she just won the lottery. But what do you know? You know that the sum total value of all the toys that she got is maybe a hundred bucks. And so from a sheer net worth perspective, she's destitute. And those toys aren't going to last very long. But she thinks she's in heaven. And I want to tell you something. There's going to come a time in the next life where we're going to look at the very best stuff that life has to offer. You name it, a second or third home on the most beautiful beach in the world, a yacht, a, your own private jet, whatever. We'll look at all that stuff like a parent looks at child's toys at Christmas and we'll say we were destitute. We were far too easily pleased. For the people in this church in Smyrna, heaven most certainly wasn't on earth. They had their, hot, their eyes and their hearts fixed on the next life. Heaven would be a relief for them. At last, I'm home, they would say. And that perspective carried them through the afflictions and the poverty and the persecution all the way to the end. And so much of our compromise and so much of our casualness in the Western church is because we try to fit our following of Jesus into a life so full of materialism. We have so much that like the four-year-old girl that I asked you to imagine, we're poor. (laughs) We're poor. And one day that will become clear to us. These people, they had their hope in the next life. And things aren't going to get any better for them. Jesus tells them, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil, there's that old devil again, will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days again, probably, a, probably referencing some uh, that it would be a finite period of time. And he says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. I don't know if those verses have the same effect on you as they have on me, but they take my breath away. Because let's just be clear on what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on living. Does that take your breath away? Just... Stop and let that sink in for a moment. How do you think they would have heard that at the church at Smyrna? It is more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on living. And once you recover from the initial shock of that breathtaking claim, the question that you might be asking is, really, why? And as faithful as these Christians in Smyrna were, you know there had to be times that they wondered, is all of this worth it? There must have been moments when they were hungry enough or tired enough or concerned enough about their children that they were tempted to just say the words, Caesar is Lord, and go back to their lives. And in those moments, a person's decision is ultimately shaped by their belief in who or what will have the last word in the universe and who or what is the ultimate authority behind everything and who or what is ultimate reality. And let me promise you, if you believe that Jet Setter Magazine represents ultimate reality, you'll say the word Caesar is Lord and before the day is over, you'll be on a beautiful beach somewhere sipping a pina colada and singing along with Jimmy Buffett. 
But if you believe Jesus is the ultimate reality, the last word, the real authority, the King of kings, you'll endure to the end, even to the point of death. This persecution at Smyrna continued well into the second century. An urban mob uh, demanded the arrest of a man uh, in the second century. Uh, an urban mob demanded the arrest of a man named Polycarp. It's kind of a weird name, isn't it? That's how they, that was how names sounded back then. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was a man who'd been discipled by the apostle John himself. Polycarp was brought before the proconsul who said, Swear by the genius of Caesar and curse Christ. What would you have done? You could be sipping a pina colada on a beach, singing along with a Jimmy Buffett song, or you could die. Polycarp replied, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he was condemned to death and then burned alive. It is more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on living. Those of you who have kids, is that something you teach them? Or maybe if they're too young right now, is that something you will teach them? That it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on loving? And if you will teach them that, how do you plan on teaching them that? Because words only go so far. And frankly, you may never actually be called upon to be a martyr for Jesus, to be actually martyred for Jesus. So how will you teach them that with more than just your words? If you grew up in a Christian home, did your parents teach you that? That it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on living? And and if so, how did they teach you that? I'll let you kick those questions around in your city life groups this week. But I think it would be worth asking and worth talking about, worth thinking about. I haven't been completely forthcoming with you to this point in the sermon. I've been holding out on you just a little bit. I said earlier that there was a clue to why these people were so white hot in their passion for Jesus, so willing to endure faithfully all of the persecution that they were experiencing. And I said it was because they had their hope in the next life, and that's true. But I think there's another reason. And it's that they were committed to the person Jesus. They were committed to the person, Jesus. You might have noticed that this letter is very personal in that Jesus begins it in verse 8 by referring to himself as the first and the last who died and came to life again. And then throughout the letter, he reassures them that he knows their afflictions and poverty and the slander that is being directed at them. He makes a promise to them in this letter that he will give them the crown of life, referring to Life after death. It's a very personal letter all the way through. And I was listening to a podcast this week about a woman who had come out of a particular cult. It doesn't matter what the cult was. It just 
some generic cult, let's say that. And she was talking about the fact that what had kept her in the cult for so long, even though friends and family and other people even had criticized the particular cult leader, was that she believed that the cult leader was, in her words, quote, the next Messiah, a Jesus type, a Buddha type of guru who is trying to bring ethics into an unethical world. That's what she said. And as soon as she said it, it immediately brought into crystal clear clarity the difference between Jesus and all of the other religious leaders of the world. She was right about Buddha. He gave his followers a system of ethics, a way of life, a philosophy to live by. But she was wrong about Jesus. Jesus, you see, didn't just give his followers a system of ethics or a philosophy to live by. He gave his followers himself. He gave us him. He gave us his life. He died on a Roman cross in our place so that we could live. Buddha never gave his life for his followers. He died an old man. And you see, these people in Smyrna were deeply committed, not ultimately to a philosophy or to a set of beliefs or some system of ethics, because that would be tough. Man, that would be tough to just be committed to some abstract thing all the way to the end, even to the point of death. No, they were committed to a person. How did Polycarp put it? He said, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You see, when these people considered how Jesus had loved them and all that he had done for them, they were willing to endure anything for him. It was personal for them. You see, it was personal. I think we get caught up as Christians, the church, we get so caught up sometimes in talking about what we believe theologically. Whether we're Calvinists or Arminians, whether we're uh, what we believe about eschatology and, and what we believe about salvation and the ordinances of the church and what we believe about abortion and LGBTQ and, and all of this stuff, we get caught up in all of that. All of that's important. I'm not undermining the importance of that, but perhaps we forget that it's who we believe that matters the most. It is personal for us, you see. And I asked you earlier if the fact that it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on living is the kind of thing that you would teach your kids. And if so, how would you do it? Well, it seems to me that however you do it, it begins by helping them see that your faith is personal. It is not faith in an abstract code of ethics or a philosophy of life. It is faith in Jesus. It is personal. It is the King to whom you are devoted, who is your Savior, your Lord, and your hope. It is personal. That's what made these people in Smyrna willing to suffer persecution, even to the point of death. It was personal. They had their hope in the next life, but also they were committed to the person, Jesus. And I want to leave you with this. The tragic response of many Christians in the face of the increasing hostility of, to, to Christianity in America, the tragic response has either been to shrink and be silent or to capitulate to the culture and try to fit Christianity and its claims and its beliefs and its commands into the secular framework of our culture. That's unfortunate. Here's what I want you to understand today as we leave this letter. 
is that the future belongs to Christians of conviction. That's the promise that Jesus makes in this final verse. When he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, if you were to read on in the book of Revelation, Jesus describes how he will reign over the world in the end. After he defeats Satan in a final stunning battle for supremacy. He says that there will be a world that he reigns over. It will be a perfect world. It will be a world in which there's no pain, in which there's no mourning, there'll be no suffering. It will be exactly the world that God originally designed way back at the beginning of the book of Genesis, but that the fall of man, sin, ruined. Jesus says, in the end, I'm going to recreate the world, and it's going to be exactly what God designed. But those who reject Christ won't be a part of that world, that kingdom over which Jesus will reign. They will experience what Jesus calls the second death at the judgment. But not so for those who believe in the one who died and rose again. They will dwell with him forever in his perfect kingdom, and they will not be disappointed. The future, you see, belongs to Christians of conviction. And as we think about City Church, as we do some self-examination, are we those people? Are we Christians of conviction? This afternoon, I I, I would suggest that if, if this passage has the same effect on you that it has had on me, maybe do some self-examination this afternoon. If it hasn't, don't. Don't, this isn't about guilt. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. I'm trying to ask you simply do you believe that it's more faithful to be, it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on living? And the only way that, I think the only way that you're going to say yes to that is if you understand that ultimately Christianity is a commitment to a person, not a set of beliefs, not a system of ethics, but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did for you out of sheer love for you. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? We want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for the freedom that we experience in America today to worship you. Um, I want to thank you for that freedom. We are blessed beyond what we even know. The people in Smyrna would have looked at us and they would have said, we long for what you have. Yet at the same time, we also recognize that we're so rich, we're poor. Because our wealth sort of, well, it roots us here on earth. It makes us forget that there's a next life, a better life to come. Lord Jesus, I pray for us as a church that we would be Christians of conviction. That we would not capitulate to the culture, nor would we shrink back. But that we would clearly state 
to the people around us that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did for us, because of his love for us. What king sacrifices his very life for his people? Only Jesus does that. So Lord, let us be people who are so deeply committed to the person, Jesus, that we would be willing to be faithful even to the point of death. Whatever hostility increases in America, Lord, I pray that we would remain faithful, but that part of our faithfulness to you would be love even for the people who are hostile to us. Because that's what you called us to. That's what you did for us. We were hostile to you. And yet you loved us. So let us be let us be loving toward those who are hostile to us. In hopes that maybe one day they would also love you. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray.